Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold bad opinions and false notions of the enemy and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host this Monday, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogmatics because we believe that when God speaks, he does so that we hear him in order that we hear him and that we would speak his word back to him. Just as St. Paul exhorts all Christians, he says to hunger for the truth when he says, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. I have guests with me today on our journey to read through Francis Pieper's Dogmatics, Pastor Adam Filipek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgewood, North Dakota, and Pastor Adam Moline of Emmanuel Lutheran Church and St. John Lutheran Church in Hankison, North Dakota. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks Jonathan. Jonathan. Great to be here. So we left off on around the bottom of page 32 with this really challenging and even awkwardly named problem, the crux de legorum, the problem of the cross. I'm just going to read what Pieper says about it again because he seems to think this is a strength of Lutheranism, even though I think most people would consider it a weakness. He says, we should here like to call attention to the fact that the Lutheran Church has proved its unwavering adherence to the sola scriptura, that scripture alone principle, in a matter in which the great majority of theologians from St. Augustine down to our day have, under the stress of rationalistic considerations, abandoned the scripture principle. We refer to what is known as the crux telegorum. The question, are you willing to maintain both the universal grace and the grace alone forces of Scripture. That question forces men to disclose whether Scripture or reason rules their theology. That is to say, either you're going to say, Jesus died for everybody, and so therefore it's up to you to accept what he did, or to work your way into a completion of what he did, as Rome would say, or you're going to say Jesus didn't die for everybody, but he did die entirely by grace alone so that salvation has none of your works whatsoever in it. But you can't say both and at the same time hold to reason or what people calls rationalistic uh, considerations. The, the math doesn't add up. Guys, when you were at seminary and you first ran into this problem, did it, did it break your brains? <laughs> Only well, when you I hear the Latin. <laughs> pray East, right? Or uh, why are some saved and not others? It's a profound difficulty of man that we face because we are, as Pieper earlier talked about, wanting to always self-justify. We want to justify ourselves. We want to think that we're good enough, that we're smart enough. And people like us, Jonathan. But the fact of the matter is that we are sinners. And so trying to grasp at the straw, how is it then? that someone gains salvation and this both universal grace of God and by grace alone that people talk about. It's, it's a complex and difficult issue for the Christian church. Moline? Yeah, and, and even in the parish, I think um, <clears throat> this question is uh, one that people struggle with, maybe not in these uh, theological terms that uh, uh, Pieper is using, but um, there is that question, you know, um, <clears throat> Christ dies for everyone, his his forgiveness of sins is for all sin, and yet then why are some people uh, not saved? And then um, is it our work to uh, 
to trust in him or as he save us, as, uh, as it says, by uh, by grace, people really get this all muddled up. And even, you know, me trying to explain how they get it muddled up, I get it muddled up uh, just talking about it. So I found that the question would come up again and again as we struggled our way through other pieces of theology. In one sense, all roads lead to election because election is where the gospel is. The choice of God for you is the good news. And yet, how can that be while some people aren't saved? Does that mean God doesn't love everybody? And so you got these passages of Scripture that are so clear. God died for the, the wicked. God desires the wicked to repent. And yet, on the, on the other hand, these passages that, that basically make it clear that, and that it's because of the wicked not repenting that the wicked are not saved. And yet, we also, it's clear that, that it is by grace alone that we are saved, that when one is saved, God's the one doing that. And the bringing our brains against us and trying to figure out defeats the purpose of it, I think, which is that is there to be preached as the certainty of the gospel. And Pieper points this to that this is then the test of whether or not you hold to Scripture alone or not. And the Calvinists, he says, cannot pass this final examination. They insist, as we have seen, that if the grace alone is to be saved, the universal grace must be sacrificed. And the synergists, that is, those who had works to salvation, fail in this final test. They demand that in order to save the universal grace, the grace alone must be surrendered. Both, says reason, cannot be maintained at the same time. The Lutheran Church is fully conscious of the difficulty which the human mind here encounters, but our church maintains both the universal grace and the grace alone, fully and without any restrictions, because both doctrines are clearly revealed in Scripture. It leaves the intellectually difficult the intellectual difficulty unresolved for the present, it awaits the solution in the yonder life. So he, he admits what we were just, all, all three of us really just struggled with putting it into words very quickly and, and carefully, that this is a problem, but the only way to get rid of the problem is to get rid of Scripture. Right, and if we take Scripture at what it says, we have this problem, and it is not given for us uh, in this world to resolve it. Uh, we're just to... Uh, believe what Scripture says, what our Lord teaches us, and uh, to proclaim that uh, as pastors and to believe that as uh, uh, members of the congregations and church, um, and um, maybe to leave this question to God rather than to uh, use our, our rationalism or our, our um, logic to try and come up with an answer that we think will fit it, because no matter what answer we come up with, we are going to go against what Scripture clearly teaches. This is where Calvin and Jacob Arminius and Zwingli and the Radicals all get brought in to the discussion in Luther's day, because it is for this purpose that they try to solve the issue. And honestly, I wish I had like a blackboard, Jonathan, you know, or a whiteboard or whatever, you know, just chalk and, and markers, because there's a diagram. So if you're listening along to try to help you make sense of this, Sort of in four corners of your paper, draw a couple things. One, put salvation in the top left and put um, damnation in the top right. Put God in the bottom left and put man in the bottom right. And Calvin's answer to why some are saved and not others, I suppose, has been boiled down to, albeit perhaps a bit simple, in the last hundred years in our Bible classes to the picking of a flower on a petal, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And so Calvin's answer is this, if you wanna be saved, God determines your salvation. And so you can draw that line from your bottom left to the, the top left, right? God, God actually wants 
you to be saved. But in the same token, if you are damned, well, then God has chosen against you. This is the election you're referring to. So the pedal gets thrown away, right? He loves you not. So God is responsible for your salvation and for your damnation. Whereas Zwingli, the radicals, Jacob Arminius has it the other way. On the actual axiom of damnation and salvation, you have the arrow going for man being responsible for your salvation. So man was predisposed, he made a choice, he accepted Jesus into his heart. But on the other token of it, if you don't believe, well then that that falls on you. So salvation happens in on the part of man, whereas scripture has the paradox. It has the paradox, if we are saved, then we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God is responsible for it. And if we reject, well, then that arrow goes from man to damnation. We are responsible for it. You know, Matthew 23, 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now listen carefully. And you were not willing. So each time you speak about this in scripture, every time you speak about salvation, it is by grace that you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. The arrow goes from God to salvation. God is responsible for your salvation. But when we're talking about rejection and damnation, then scripture leaves that in the camp of man. And I always try to talk about it too. And it's just an analogy and analogies all have their weak points. But um, um, I always talk about it with an arm. Everybody has been given an arm by God. Um, it's there. I can cut it off and throw it away. Uh, it would be a kind of a gory, gruesome thing. Um, but I can't make a new one grow there. I can't reattach it. Um, God puts it there. I can cut it off and throw it away, but I can't make it come itself. Only God can do that. And that's just a little analogy, and it's probably not the best, but um, that's a way that I, I try to explain it a little bit to uh, people struggling with this idea. It is difficult. Or wrestling. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. I just say the problem with man here on this one too is that we don't like tensions. We don't like paradoxes. If it's unresolved, if there's an unsolved mystery, then what do we do? We we create a program and we gotta solve it. Man has to solve everything. We're rational beings. We've got to have control of our own little world and our own little corner. And this is where theology goes wrong. If you start trying to resolve the mysteries of God, then you're gonna end up in heresy. You're gonna end up in false teaching and false doctrine. What you end up having to do is confess the truth. That's what we do. There's a lot of paradoxes, honestly, that we can talk about in Christianity. We can speak very intellectually about the two natures of Christ. We can speak very intellectually about the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God but three persons, or like I said earlier with the two natures of Christ, that one man is both God and man at the same time. We can talk very intellectually and erudite about it, but at the end of the day, it still remains a mystery, and I have to be okay with that. Christ speaks it. I may not always understand it. I may not always like it, and that's what I mean by like it. I may not always like that I'm a sinner, but Christ says it, therefore it is, and I, I am only free to confess it. Yeah, the, the temptation is to try to make this a matter of theory rather than a matter of 
can I say it this way, practice, and, and that's what we're struggling with, is how do we talk about something which ultimately is only resolved in the cross itself? It's only resolved in the body of Jesus on the cross. There he is for you and for all the world. There he is, grace alone. Here's his word about him declaring this to you, and that word is the power of salvation to all who believe it. Do you believe it? If you do, he did it. If you don't, that's on you. That You can't really put that thing into a theory. Peeper isn't going to give up on this. This topic is going to come back later and be dealt with in more detail. But right now, what he's trying just to use it to do is to demonstrate his primary point in the entire dogmatic series, which is that Scripture alone is our foundation, that when you go away from Scripture, you lose two things. You'll lose the vicarious satisfaction of Jesus on the cross eventually. And so, therefore, you're also going to lose grace as the, the centrality of what Christianity really is. And then, therefore, every time Christianity does this, this is what causes the rifts within the Christian church, so that all the divisions and factions of the Christian church are, as he says in the next sentence, the result of a departure of, of scripture do, from the Scripture doctrine. Modern theologians of all shades not only assume a number of noble motives, such as the quest for truth, the scientific spirit, or the, de- uh, the deviation from the scripture doctrine and the incident formation of sex, but even assert that, and he quotes, these divergent trends have been designed by God and are beneficial to the church. So he, what he's saying there is that modern man has so accepted the problem of not having scripture alone, of being divided about what we believe because we don't trust in scripture, that we've started saying how it's a wonderful thing that there's all these divisions so we can have so much different kinds of unity that we don't all agree on. Um, But he says over and against this, scripture states the very opposite and states it most emphatically that the motives actuating those responsible for this abnormal phenomenon in Christendom are carnal, not noble. So, and that's pretty big fighting word there. Basically, he's saying any time that you would say the division in the divisions in the church are a gift from God, or it's good that we all disagree, that's your opinion, that's my opinion, we'll just have to kind of find our way through it together. He says this is being driven by a carnal or a fleshly or a purely given over to temptation and sinful spirit. Uh, something to pause and take note of. Our world <laughs> loves diversity, doesn't it? And we champion diversity. And while championing diversity in certain things aren't wrong, championing diversity when it comes to religion and worldviews is to go in air. And it's to lead you further away from the truth. And that's, that's the hard thing, that there is one truth. And you don't get to determine it. You don't get to assign it. You get to confess it. So the diversity then lies not in the heart of God, but in the heart of man. Diversity concerning religion is not a good thing. Like I said, there's one truth and you confess it. And so concerning this point of papers, diversity is a carnal. And I like that word. It comes from the Corinthians uh, language when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians to the Greeks. And the word that he uses there is sarkikos. Um, fleshy. So you have this sinful desire and this pure desire. You think that diversity in religion is purity and truth and right. You think it's what God wants. But in fact, that is sinful. The fact that you have many different world religions, the fact that you have many different truths and you think that it's right, it's actually not of God, but of sin, flesh, and the devil. We see this, we look around all over the world too, don't we? I mean, 
um, all the churches um, that uh, use their fleshly thinking uh, to try and determine their theology. So, I mean, if we want to talk about really fleshly thinking, we can talk about um, the way that um, marriage is no longer connected to what God says in Scripture, but rather how our modern society has interpreted it, or even how did the world come about? Um, he talks about science being one of the ways that uh, people try to uh, take away from Scripture. And so did God create the earth in uh, six days and rest on the seventh, or was it billions of years, um, or can we even merge the two, uh, as lots of people try to do? When we do that, we're taken away from the clear teaching of Scripture and uh, uh, trusting instead in our fleshly understanding and our uh, own reason, uh, and that uh, is a problem for our faith. To drive this point home then, Dr. Beeper points us to quite a number of Scripture passages, which is where I like to spend the majority of our time today, at least insofar as we are able. And all of these passages are emphasizing the fact that the Scriptures warn against false teaching, that there is such a thing as false teaching, and that it's not taken lightly, that it's not something that's to be kind of poo-pooed or, or dealt with, or even, as we were just talking about, celebrated effectively. And the first passage he points us to is Romans chapter 16, starting at verse 17. He really just points us to verse 17, but I'm going to read a little bit more than that there. This is the close of, you know, the great Romans letter in which he's declaring all of these amazing glories of God and in, in the, the fullness of there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that we are justified by faith. And I mean, it's, just, it's a feel-good letter if there ever really was one. But he closes it after commending a bunch of people by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So you get there where, where he says, you know, they're serving their own appetites. I think that's where Peeper is pulling this carnal idea that is the belly, the hunger for my own mind that's really driving, again, all division in the world and, and then particularly division in the church, which see, seeks to unseat Christ from his vicariously atoning throne on the cross and put instead some other form of, of what, what did Luther call it, the bread god? Yeah, yeah, and um, it, you, you mentioned that these divisions are in the church, and they are, and, uh, you know, sadly, even they're within our own church body, that um, uh, we do have, you know, um, sinful human natures. Every single person in our church, our pastors, our uh, church leadership, all the way down, um, and um, we have the little things that we want to hold on to, our little idols, and um, the um, things that we feel are important, whether or not Scripture talks that way or not. And uh, when we hold on to those little um, idols, then what happens is we have created division within the church. If if we could all just say, uh, and we can't because of our sinful natures, but if we could all just say we, we are going to follow completely and totally perfectly what Scripture says, we'd probably uh, have less divisions, but our sinful natures don't allow us to do that. The division in Romans that Paul is speaking of goes all the way back to chapters 1 and 2. You have 
people who are claiming to be Christian, right? Jews who are condemning both Jews and Greeks for their crass idolatry. And it makes a whole list of idolatrous things, Paul does, in the first book, or the first chapter of Romans, rather. But in the second chapter, he says, basically, you're right in condemning these things, but what you fail to realize is what you preach against is actually what you yourself are, a sinner. You exclude them, and you think you're righteous. And then in chapter 3, there is no one who is righteous. All sin, all fall short of the glory of God. The just wages of sin is death. Then he moves on to baptism. He moves on to how we have been set free from that sin, that slavery to sin. And we are now members of the body of Christ. Our incorporation in baptism, there's this constant struggle, war back and forth. And so he gives them this whole body of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them, how they were once an enemy, but now they are a blood-bought, redeemed, forgiven child of God. So once he gets done laying all all of that out, he commends to them, if you hear anything contrary to this word of truth that Christ has set before me and which I preach to you, avoid them. Let there be no division because there is one teaching and it's the teaching I handed to you. I love the language about being innocent with regards to evil as well, right? But wise with regards to the good. And so there's this this pressure there from Paul, and I don't mean that it, that can be a negative word, but th- this emphasis, this holding up of there being something of value, something worth pursuing, and, and at the same time being something dangerous. And this, I think, is what is lost in much of the modern world. And you, you can take this all the way into the New Age stuff, right, where people believe in all sorts of spirituality. They think the crystals have power or the rocks or, or the, the, the earth itself, but they've lost the belief that there's such a thing as a, as a darkness, that there's such a thing as an evil power that's out there. And so all truth is, is good, which is ironic because if you just look at the way that humanity lives, I mean, who could say such a thing about humans at least? It's certainly our war and our, our hatred for each other would lead us to believe there is such a thing as evil in the world. This is the beauty of verse 20. It would be the synonymous with what we do with the Lord's Prayer, we pray, um, deliver us from evil. But the translation is actually deliver us from the evil one. Luther talks about this. So verse 20 picks up on this. Be wise to what is good, verse 19. Well, what, what is good? And be innocent of what is evil. Well, what is evil? The God of peace is good. And he will soon crush the evil one, Satan, under your feet. And then he gives the celebratory rejoice. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Everything that comes along with evil, God is going to crush. He's going to crush the evil one and the works of the evil one. He has crushed them, yes, on the cross. But Paul, looking forward to the resurrection, is anticipating that, which he had spoken of in chapter 12. And even uh, we pray this uh, verse 20 that uh, Pastor Phil Peck is talking about. Uh, in the words of the litany, uh, we, uh, my congregation, we pray the litany every week during the season of Lent, uh, which is uh, now a couple weeks over. And um, that's one of those uh, petitions in there that uh, Satan may be beat down under our feet. And uh, uh, that's really our, um, our prayer then, that um, the God of peace and his word would 
uh, crush Satan. It's the fulfillment even of the promise from Genesis chapter 3 uh, that uh, uh, Satan would pierce the heel of the seed of Eve uh, and that uh, that same seed of Eve would crush him uh, at the same time. And that points us then uh, straight to the cross of Christ, uh, which all Scripture then teaches us about. And all false teaching then points us away from, hence the the, the emphasis right. here, right? And so he, the second verse he gives us to look at is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, and he points out verse 3 in this section again because he's emphasizing that the carnal belly, the mind of, of the fallen man is the main thing at work here when we're when we're pursuing or accepting false teaching, but there's it's a great section on clinging to the truth. 1 Timothy opens and closes with the emphasis that Young Pastor Timothy should continue to preach the same doctrine that he's been given by Paul. So here he says, starting at really verse 2b of chapter 6, teach and urge these things. And I think that means everything that he's been saying up to this point. And then verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you this, Paul says, and continues on, and maybe you heard a little bit of our cross-defense opening monologue there. We're going to talk about more of this on the other side of this break with Pastor Adam Moline and Pastor Adam Filipek. You're listening to Cross-Defense on Worldwide Key, if you will. We'll be right back. Worldwide KFUO salutes our day sponsors on this Monday, May 15th, 2017. Today's day sponsors are Terry and Sheila Hyde. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO in celebration of their 35th wedding anniversary. Once again, we say thank you to Terry and Sheila Hyde of Chestermere, Alberta, Canada. Today's Worldwide KFUO day sponsors. Liturgical art is a beautiful expression of Christ's great love for us. I'm Kelly Schumacher, founder of Ani's Day Arts, and I would like to help you learn about liturgical art and the beauty it portrays as you view it through paintings, drawings, sculptures, and altarpieces. I'm available to speak with your group. My website is anusdayarts.com, A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I-Arts.com. Right now, you can double the impact of your giving to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They got their dollar-for-dollar match. It's back. A fantastic opportunity to help new Christians, new Lutherans in places like Slovakia, Mongolia, 
and Japan have at their fingertips fantastic biblical resources like the Small Catechism, a children's garden of Bible stories, and Good News Magazine. Did you know that the cost to translate and print one small catechism in a foreign language is only $5? Now imagine just how far that $5 goes as a tool put into the hands of a faithful pastor to help his people learn the language of the Bible, the importance of confessing the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, and of course that proper distinction between law and gospel, that the gospel is that Jesus wants you to be his own and live under him in his kingdom, which is of course why he shed his precious blood for you. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is working in over 105 languages with over 840 titles published in 95 of those languages. I'm not kidding when I say they're doing phenomenal work all around the globe, and they are certainly worth contacting and supporting with your mission giving. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Come on, just go ahead right now. Head over, give them five bucks. That'll get two catechisms translated and printed. Totally worth your time. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We left off with a great section from Paul exhorting young Pastor Timothy to teach rightly, to hold firmly to the word which has been given because it is the word of salvation. But kind of with an emphasis so far as Dr. Pieper is concerned today to help us see that the reason you would not do this is the hunger of your belly, the carnal nature of your mind, or in his words from First uh, Timothy 6 verse 4, that the false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Probably not the way you want to approach somebody who's teaching falsely uh, next door if you want to have a conversation with them, though. No, and uh, it does remind me the way he said it all here, and uh, as we just heard it before the break, uh, reminds me of first-year seminarians. You know, we send our our pastors to school for um, four years of college and four years of seminary after that, and, uh, you know, our first-year seminary, we've gone through college, we've got a degree, we kind of think we know everything, and uh, we're not uh, always afraid to say that as we start seminary, but it takes that time, uh, all that education, all the patient teaching from professors and uh, uh, even the experience of vicarage and, and being in an actual congregation to realize, uh, which, you know, I don't know about you guys, I just realized this the fourth year finally, I really don't know anything. And um, uh, Took you that long, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> my wife tried to tell me earlier, but, uh, um, you know, and that uh, really the only place we have to go for answers is what Christ says in his scripture and that we need to do that to be a faithful pastor because our own understanding um, matters nothing uh, once you get out in the parish. So. I want to I jump in and kind of dive off that because that could be misunderstood as well. So it's not that the seminarian wasn't given anything of value in the training and sound doctrine that they receive, but it's far less like having a golden box that you get to carry around and have everybody touch it and they're magically healed, and far more like being given a set of martial maneuvers. So like say being trained in in karate or kung fu, you pick your favorite martial art and you get out and, and you, you start to get in some, some brawling matches and you begin to realize that while you've been given a lot of the right moves, you don't necessarily know how to use them. And you might actually hurt somebody who you need to teach if you, if you don't use them correctly, or you might end up in a situation where you're completely unprepared. It's gotten rusty and you don't know how to, how to handle the other side of it. So it, it's less like a magic pill and more like a 
well, I guess I could say a sword, the sword of the spirit. You've been handed the sword. It doesn't necessarily mean you know how to use it. And part of knowing how to use it is knowing that you got to rely on someone else ultimately being the answer for you as well as for everybody else. We always think we are very, very wise in our own eyes. And I appreciate the analogy that my brother Moline laid before us because I think it's still the temptation of everyone, but concerning pastors, even once you get out of the seminary. Uh, This guy has a doctorate, I need a doctorate. This guy has a book, I have to get a book. That guy preached a sermon, I can preach a better sermon. It's constantly there. And this is also the struggle, not just of the 21st century Christian, this was the struggle in Timothy's day, in Paul's day that we're talking about, even in 1 Corinthians. You have people walking in Corinth who say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And Paul has to say, what? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Are you baptized in the name of the uh, name of Paul? And then he makes the most profound statement of all. One of my favorites from 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where's the one who was wise? Where's the scribe, right? Where's the debater of this age? Jews demand signs, Greek seeks wisdom. They all look for the man-made stuff. Show us the bread. Show us the bread, king. Give us the wisdom. Give us the knowledge. Show us the signs. But no, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to we who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Peter then points us to John chapter 5 as well, and this might not be a place that everyone's quite ready to jump to when you're dealing with false teachers and how to understand their motives, which is really what we're dealing with. Is Christ, at the end of one of his longer discussions about being the Son of God and having authority, and he turns on the Pharisees and those accusing them, and he says some pretty mean words. I mean, I think people think of Jesus in the New Testament as, as kind of the loving guy. He does he does the loving thing. Love Jesus, love. But man, this is, this is some harsh stuff here. So picking up at verse 37, he says, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's speaking about himself. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive my glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you do not when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This here again, trying to show how the the false teacher, the one who comes in his own name, with his own words, rather than actually in God's name, which means with God's actual words, he comes for the sake of his own glory, to build himself up, considering godliness a means for gain, as it were. And Christ calls that what it is, you know, complete folly, as you were saying there, Pastor Philippeck, a moment ago. And, and we do see this in ourselves. I mean, you can't read this and not have it accuse you a little bit that we, we want to compare ourselves to each other 
and kind of say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so so I'm doing pretty well. And that's sort of the way that the modern teachers approach their their false doctrine as well. It's like, well, you know, we we, we may not have all truth, but we got more truth than, say, the Muslims. Or, or you know, we're not killing people and, and burning them at the stake or whatever. But the point is, a little leaven, love is the entire lump, and that little leaven at heart is is still our pride, at least according to Christ's words here. Any thoughts about any of that, guys? You know, I think our pride, um, it's easy for us to look at, uh, you know, a, a television pastor and, and uh, criticize how he's using the gospel to, to get his big house or uh, his fancy car. Or uh, one of them the other day uh, I saw had uh, his airplane had broke down, and so he needed special donations to get his airplane. We can look at that and uh, easily see these words of Christ uh, fulfilled. It is a lot more difficult when we're the one who is in error, which we are, right? Um, but uh, when our errors pointed out, um, we're very quick to go on the defense, uh, very quick to uh, do that judgment and criticizing of the other person, uh, rather than, uh, as we ought to do, confess our sin, uh, trust in Christ, and receive absolution. Um, we don't like to do that. We don't want to be sinners. We don't want to be guilty. We as human beings love what we might call the one-up game, it's a game that we all play. It's who's the greatest. And so someone starts telling you a story, you'll never guess the fish that I caught. That's nothing, you say, one up. You should have seen the fish I caught. You'll never guess what my grandchildren did, what I did when I was young. You'll never guess my accomplishment. That's nothing, one up. You should have seen what I do. And so we have a measure for greatness, always. It's how well behaved and how tolerant we are that makes us the most loving citizen. It's how well our grandchildren do, how well behaved they are and what grades they get. That makes us the greatest parent or grandparent. And the same thing as it goes throughout all of our lives. We preach the sermon, and so that makes us the better pastor. That's nothing. You preach that sermon. <laughs> it's, it's why Jesus takes a child and he sets it in the midst of the disciples, in the midst of an argument about who's the greatest. And he says, greatest? Gentlemen, you want to tell me you want to talk about greatest, let me tell you something. Unless you turn and become like this child, you're not even going to get in to the kingdom of God. And the placing of a child is absolutely spectacular in the context of Matthew, because while they are arguing about the greatest, and Jesus puts the child there, the world in our day and age thinks, oh, a, a child means um, innocent. And any of you who ever have children knows that even before they can talk, they're doing something, they're hiding something, they're hiding behind the couch playing something. I mean, they're, they're doing all kinds of things that they shouldn't do. A child is not innocent. We are conceived and born in sin. And a child is not trusting. Jesus doesn't mean trusting when he says child. Because any of you who've ever taught your children how to ride a bike or swim have to constantly repeat the word. It's okay, dad's gonna catch you. No, it's okay, dad's got your bike, keep going. You have to constantly reassure him. So not innocent and not trusting, but rather dependent. We need to be dependent upon Christ alone. He who admits that he is the worst, he who confesses that they are by nature sinful and unclean, he who gets, goes against the popular children's book, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and remembers that they can't. I'm not the greatest, I can't fix this, and I can't make my life better. I need someone, I need a savior to send, to rescue me from sin, death, and the devil. He it is who sees that and confesses that by the grace of God, that's the greatest in the kingdom of God, because then they are fully and solely dependent upon Christ and him alone. 
So those who stir up division in the church by teaching doctrines other than the one Christ gave are serving their own belly, puffed up with conceit, proud, greedy for honor. And all of this, it leads them to what Galatians chapter 6 tells us. Because they're greedy for honor, because they want their, their pride stroked, they also can't handle having to put up with any amount of hatred for what they teach if it's the truth. So in Galatians chapter 6, right after Paul says that he's writing with his own hand now instead of using a scribe to write for him, he says in verse 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So what I've always seen in that text there is that the false teacher isn't really trying to justify the people listening to him or her. The false teacher is still trying to justify himself, but the way that he can justify himself is by convincing himself that he's heard. And so he wants to make a good showing in the flesh of all the people who follow him because then it looks like he's doing a good job teaching. He's actually more under the law than maybe the rest of them are and closer to, to falling out of faith if he has any left than the rest of them are. But he's, he's constantly needing them to do what he says, in this case, have circumcision, so he can convince himself that he himself is safe in God's sight. And in this way, he's trying to avoid any type of, of threat, right? Anybody who would say, nope, what you're teaching is false, well, that, that persecution or that threat, even if it's a false, maybe I'm being confused here, but even if it's a false accusation, right? So someone comes along and hears the truth and says, nope, that's false. He's, he won't put up with that. He'll change what he says to get them to listen again. They're constantly pursuing, uh, I don't know how to say this, a, 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 a me better mentality or a uh, being the friend of everyone mentality, uh, holding up myself as the ultimate bar. Ah, uh, maybe that didn't make sense. That makes sense to you guys? It did. Galatians chapter 6 is really a stark thing. And it's in that first couple verses that you read there, especially in verse 12, those who want to make a good showing of the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul is facing those who are claim to be Christian who are teaching, who will hold up the cross of Christ one minute, but then when their Jewish friends start to be like, wait a minute, hold on, the cross of Christ, that's offensive to me. They say, well, see, you need to be circumcised. And so they attach circumcision and an outward law to the cross so as not to offend those who are preaching so that they can be all things, in a bad sense of the word, as we use it, to be all things to all people. And that is not how Paul uses that statement uh, to be all things to all people, but they're attaching an outward law to the gospel in order to appease their hearers so that they don't get persecuted. It's such a difficult law, too, isn't it? I mean, the whole book of Galatians, you hear scissors in the background, and um, can you imagine, you know, um, you're saved by grace, but you need to be circumcised. Uh, this particular law that they had put in place, that uh, this is the thing that determines your your faith, which is you know, imagine you're a, an uncircumcised Greek who's uh, wanting to become Christian. That's a pretty, pretty uh, difficult thing to um, a law to follow. And uh, you know, I think Paul makes that point really well in the entire book. 
it's by grace, uh, thank goodness, uh, put the scissors away. So there's a few this more. The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. This is the difficulty even in our day because we hear the preaching of the gospel in the same way. Jesus died and rose for you. Awesome. Good gospel. And then a couple seconds later, now all you have to do, and you right. can fill in the blank. All you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer. All you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart. All you have to do is do a 180, I once was a sinner, but now I no longer do these things, and then you're truly Christian. All you have to do is speak in tongues. This Jesus plus is what Paul is absolutely livid about and warning against that's not it. They just want to appease everybody and make everybody think, hey, this is this guy's really good. He's got to figure it out. Because the cross preached in its entirety is actually folly, and we can't understand it, and we hate it. I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. I don't want to hear that I deserve death. I'm a pretty good person. I can do all these things. Don't you know who I am? I'm Adam Philippeck. I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff. Don't you know who I am? But at the end of the day... Nothing in thy hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord and not themselves, not Jesus plus anything, but Jesus alone shall be saved. And it's so freeing, you know, what you just said. That's great. It's, it's we're free to be in Christ and uh, uh, to not uh, have some requirement placed upon us. So That's where sin is ultimately slavery and the divisions in the church are ultimately the enslavement or the Babylonian captivity, to, to quote Luther, of, of the Christian people. It steals from us the thing that we've been given. So there's a few more verses. We're not going to be able to look at all of them. But again, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that trying to—division uh, comes about in the church when we reject Scripture out of self-interest, pride, conceit, greed, out of refusal to bear the cross— but ultimately, what this boils down to in the passage we didn't look at there is a, a total ignorance. The diversity, which we would claim is many paths leading to God, is really an ignorance of the fact that none of these paths are leading to God at all. That there is one path, and it's not one of the many. It is, it is entirely separate. But again, people in context here, his main point he wants us to get is this, this is a carnal thing, that our flesh is hungry, that our pride is the thing that would lead us to reject what Scripture is, says. And so he goes on to say how church history confirms this judgment of Scripture. So not only does the Bible say this, but look, we can see it too. And he uses a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who was one of the reformers and a, and a great reformer in some ways, although very wrong on some pretty important issues. He says one reason why Zwingli claimed to be the reformer independent of and in opposition to Luther may have been jealousy of Luther's leading position. And he quotes him where, where he, uh, Zwingli said, Luther, he said, is only one honest Ajax or Diomedes among many Nestors, Ulysses, and Menelases. <laughs> uh, Menelases. I can't even say that right. It's Greek names, but these are all great heroes of ancient Greek mythology. And Zwingli is trying to trying to say effectively, I'm just as good as Luther. We're we're all heroes here, and you should listen to me too. And, and now to defend this statement, which is it's you know maybe Peepers being a little picky here, just kind of poking it at a weakness in Zwingli, but he says. It does not go beyond the providence, province, the, the place of dogmatics, if we point out very emphatically that the evil dispositions which impels men to depart from Scripture and to create divisions as exemplified by Novatian, Zwingli, and the founders of sects in the apostolic period inheres in every one of us and is ever active, right? So he's saying, I'm not just pointing at Zwingli. This is in all of our flesh, carnal ambition, envy 
personal likes and dislikes are continually threatening to cause factions and divisions in the local churches, that means in your congregation, where you are right now, in the synods, that's church bodies, and in church federations, those are like broader groups around the world. It is clear, therefore, that the unity in the Christian doctrine is in no wise the result of our power, wisdom, and skill. The grace and power of God alone can establish and preserve it. That is what Scripture states and what the church confesses in the liturgy. That is to say, we're kind of uh, doomed, left to ourselves. We need God to do it. Isn't it wonderful? That's what Scripture says that he's going to. So, hey, guys, maybe we should cling to Scripture and keep preaching that thing which he says will unify us, which actually does. The church in her liturgy does confess this. Exactly what you said and exactly what Peter says. In fact, we confess it right away in the beginning. After the invocation, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you say you're a pretty good person, you're deserving of heaven, you get great honor, and everyone else in the world should bow to you, you're a liar. But if you confess your sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the truth. And it is really hard for us, in fact, impossible, without the word of God preached in our ears, and, and what's been lurking in the background that has not been said here is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is how grace and faith and Christ are, are imparted to you as an individual. That's what separates unbelievers from believers. It's the work of the Spirit who has continually been at work through the word of God, giving you faith, forgiveness, and eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yeah, and I, I think um, this is a difficult thing for us because we all have pride. Uh, and um, we all have, uh, you know, we've been taught this in school, self-respect, self-esteem, all these things. And um, setting those things aside to just be agreed on the word and what God teaches is not an easy thing for us to do. And personalities get in the way. The examples that he quotes there uh, Novidian uh, from the uh, uh, crisis of the third century in the Roman Empire, who uh, didn't get along with Cornelius, uh, who was elected the new pope. It was just a personal matter. Uh, or even, uh, you know, Zwingli and Luther. If Zwingli uh, would have put aside his uh, uh, pride and just listened to what the word said, uh, specifically with Zwingli, you know, about uh, the Lord's Supper uh, and a couple other places. You know, um, wouldn't that have been great if we could have all been united together? But instead, the pride there, which is displayed in that quote, that, uh, you know, Luther's just one honest Ajax, and, uh, uh, boy, Diomedes, and I'm another one. I'm just as good as he is. Rather than saying, let's look at what the Word says. Let's trust in the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, let uh, God do the thing that brings us together, which is proclaim his Word uh, and bring it to us to teach us about Christ. Closing thoughts, guys. I like how Peter ends with the prayer from John, mm -hmm. the high priestly prayer reference uh, for the, his disciples on the night in, in which he was betrayed about being united to Christ. And when you are in a united to Christ, when you know that you are a sinner and can do nothing, when you know that the fleshly desire is to be above everything and everyone, when you know that all of the false denominations and world religions arise out of sin and not out of God, when you know the truth, and here's the rub, the truth is not a concept the to be grasped. The truth is not a thought to be understood. 
the truth is a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you know the truth, Jonathan, then you shall be set free. And when the truth sets you free, you are free indeed, free in Christ. My guest, Pastor Adam Filipek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both up there in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. And my guest, Pastor Adam Oline of Emmanuel Lutheran Church and St. John Lutheran Church in Hankinson, North Dakota. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Pride comes before a fall. Pride is not the original sin. It's not the sin which caused it all. It is the result of the sin which caused it all. The sin which caused it all is unbelief. But unbelief, it feeds pride. It leads right into ego. And it is only in ego, in arrogance, in hunger for my belly instead of your belly, for my greatness instead of your greatness, that I would look at the holy word of God, the scriptures given by Jesus Christ through his prophets and his apostles and decide that I know better. And then in the calamity that results the ransacking and schisming of the church that comes from each of us chasing our own ideas, our own pride, to sit back, put my feet up on the desk and say, oh, isn't it wonderful this work of God and all this division that he's given us so that we can see how multiplexed he is or whatever? What folly? Or might I quote Shakespeare, what fools we mortals be? When it's all been complete, it's all achieved, it's all accomplished, that folly of the cross? It is no folly at all. It is the wisdom of God, which is greater than our wisdom. It is the power of God, which is greater than our strength. The weakness of the cross is the answer to all things. That is why we cling to Scripture. That is why all theology, all doctrine, all dogma is Christology. It is a understanding all the more of how Christ himself and his vicarious atonement are at the center, not just of redemption, but of creation, of sanctification, of eternity, of life in all its forms, and most especially the life of the world to come. Dr. Pieper has only just begun to set the table for us to learn more deeply this truth. We'll be getting into more of that next time on Cross Defense here on Worldwide KFUO. We certainly hope you've heard the message of good news from us here in this last hour. Just remember, Cross Defense is listener-supported. That means we rely on giving to KFUO to keep Cross Defense on the air and coming to you via the Internet as well. So if you have not yet become an annual contributor to KFUO Radio, a day sponsor, or had the radio station put into your congregational budget, consider becoming a Congregation of the Week. Please think about doing so and let us know that your reason for doing so is your hunger for more cross-defense. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, bidding you a beautiful Monday afternoon, and until next time, rock on. Rock on.